All right, good morning, Grace Bible. That's a decent. Good morning. All right, hey guys, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Trey, if you don't know me. Uh, very good uh, f- to be back with you uh, this morning. I want to thank you guys for letting me be gone on short notice. Uh, my grandfather passed away a couple weeks ago, and uh, you guys graciously let me go and uh, miss a Sunday. So uh, thank you for that, and thank you for your prayers and emails and cards and all of that. Uh, very, very grateful uh, for all of that, and uh, grateful for Herb uh, for filling in for me and doing such a wonderful job. Uh, excellent. Really enjoyed uh, Herb hearing you on Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was I listened to you. And uh, by the way, all the nice things that you said about me, the check's in the mail for that. So just, just know it's, it's coming, okay? Um, guys, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. As we finish out our uh, series called Counterfeit Gospels, Part 8, uh, The Social Gospel, uh, we will be in the book of Titus. Titus is a very small book towards the end of your New Testament. If you happen to find First or Second Timothy, uh, it falls right after Second Timothy. And we will be in the book of Titus. Uh, two of the three chapters will start in Titus chapter 2. And so uh, if you don't have your Bible today, there should be some pew Bibles in front of you. And uh, if not, the text should be on the screen. And so as you're turning to Titus chapter 2, uh, I want to give you guys one final time, a quick review of the sermon series in case you missed one or two of them. In part one of Counterfeit Gospels, uh, we talked about uh, the reality of counterfeits. And we saw from Galatians chapter one that there did, uh, 2,000 plus years ago, exist false and counterfeit gospels uh, that the apostle Paul countered and that there still does exist today counterfeit gospels even in our broader evangelical culture. In part two of Counterfeit Gospels, we talked about the wreckage of counterfeits and we saw a twofold wreckage that counterfeits cause in the church. Uh, Number one, it causes a lack of of gospel clarity. That is, we lose clarity on what the true gospel is because we have counterfeits bombarding us. Secondly, uh, not only is there a lack of gospel clarity, but there is a lack of gospel confidence. And we saw from Romans 1 that the true gospel is God's power to bring salvation in in the life of a person. But when we're uh, confused by counterfeits, we tend to lose uh, that fact and we lose faith in the power of the true gospel. Uh, Then in part three, we define the gospel. And so in part three, uh, the gospel defined, we define the gospel in this way. Uh, We define the gospel as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus Christ lived as the God-man born of uh, of a virgin, living a sinless, perfect life. He lived the perfect life of obedience that God requires of each and every person in our place. Uh, not only did he live in our place, but he died in our place. The scripture says that he dies in our, died in our place and for our sins as a substitu- substitutionary sacrifice and that the wrath of God was appeased for everyone because he poured out his wrath and justice and judgment on the Son. And then we saw that Jesus Christ was indeed resurrected from the dead, confirming both his life in our place and his death for our sins. And so we define the gospel, the true gospel, in that way. Uh, ever since then, we've been uh, going about defining counterfeit gospels. Uh, hopefully you got uh, a handout, a summary of this sermon series. If you don't, hopefully Gary has some more in the back. That's just for your, you know, for your viewing pleasure, I suppose. If you uh, are having trouble going to bed at night, you can pull that out and review the sermons. Uh, but basically, we, we went on then to talk about different counterfeits. We've talked about the I, uh, the I gospel, that is the counterfeit gospel that says it's all about me. We talked about the churchless gospel that says uh, that the church is really not a necessary part of the gospel. We talked about the judgment list or the, or the no hell gospel, which disassociates the idea of, of justice and judgment from the gospel. Uh, and then finally this morning, we are in part eight, and we will look at the final 
counterfeit gospel, and I've entitled it the social gospel. So uh, hopefully you're turned in your Bibles by now to Titus chapter 2. So let's pray one more time and we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Father, we're so very grateful uh, for the opportunity that you've given us to be here together. It's so good to come as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, under the blood of Christ, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live uh, lives that are honoring to you, Father. Uh, This morning especially, we're uh, forever grateful that you, uh, that your love endures forever, that your hesed love, that your covenantal love towards those whom you uh, have chosen and those who have chosen you, that your love towards us is everlasting, that it never fades, that it never ends, that you alone are eternal from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega, and that in the midst of our turbulent, topsy-turvy lives uh, where there are ups and downs, that we can run to you as our rock, the one who is forever stable, forever good, and forever faithful. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would be with us. I pray that you would guard my lips, help me to speak that which is accurate and true from your word, and I pray for my brothers and sisters and indeed myself as we hear from your word about the gospel and about the effects of the gospel in our life, uh, the effects of the gospel in our morality, and the effects of the gospel as it pertains to how we treat other people who do not know Jesus Christ. I pray, uh, Father, that you would come and that your spirit would come and that Jesus Christ, you would be honored in all that we do. So be among us now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are willing to obey. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would like to begin this morning with a quick story. In the book that I've uh, referenced numerous times in in this series called Counterfeit Gospels, Trevin Wax, the author, tells a story about a small country church in a rural part of Kentucky. And uh, he he tells a story about this church that led their county in an anti-alcohol movement. There was a a proposal in their county that was a dry county uh, that would uh, make the county a wet county and and enable that county to sell alcohol. And so this church, as the story goes... uh, from Trevin Wax's friend, mobilized around this cause, mobilized around the cause of causing uh, this county to be a dry county and not a wet county. And so they did all sorts of things as a church. They uh, went door to door. They talked to people uh, in every avenue uh, of life. They uh, put out ads on the radio. They put things on their church billboard. They really mobilized together around this cause that uh, they deemed to be good and right. And so the day came uh, when they would hear the news on the vote in that particular county as to whether it would be wet or dry. And so the church huddled together and they were listening to the radio and upon hearing the news that the proposal had actually been defeated and that the church had won, so to speak, there was uh, joy, there was prayer, there was weeping, there was clapping, there was uh, all sorts of excitement. And in the midst of that, um, of that scene, uh, Trevin Wax's friend happened to be there and there was a man in the church who turned to Trevin Wax his friend and said these words. He said to him, this is the best day that our church has ever had. This is the best day that our church has ever had. And Trevin Wax's friend paused for a moment. And though he was certainly excited about the outcome, he had to ponder the statement that was made by his fellow church-going friend. The best day our church has ever had? the best day that our church has ever had. And he began to think about the day that he, as a five-year-old boy, stood at the altar and placed his faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and was born again and then subsequently was baptized. And he asked the question, the best day our church has ever had? 
He then thought about a missionary couple, a young couple who met and grew up in the church and got married in the church and then sensed God's call to be missionaries in a foreign land. And he remembered the day as the church came together and poured over in prayer over this young missionary couple going to, to give their life away. And what a wonderful day it was for mobilizing the mission of Christ. And he asked the question, the best day the church has ever had? And Wax suggests that this is a scenario, it's a picture, it's a portrait of our final counterfeit gospel, which is called the social gospel. The social gospel, essentially, I'll define it this way. The social gospel is this. The good news is the social, political, or cultural good works that Christians do. This is the social gospel. I'll say it again. It's the social good works. It's the political good works. It's the cultural good works that Christians do. The social gospel, essentially at the heart of the social gospel, the social gospel confuses the effects of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, with the gospel itself. Because this country church in Kentucky, although certainly working for what they deem to be a good cause, confused the effects of the gospel, the outworkings of the gospel, with the gospel itself. And so this morning, uh, a, couple, a couple points. And so if you're taking notes, we have two main points. First of all, we're going to address the social gospel. And I think the Bible most clearly addresses the social gospel in the book of Titus. And so we're going to look at a couple passages in the book of Titus, uh, all of Titus chapter 2 and a good portion of Titus chapter 3. And what we're going to find out is that Titus, uh, the book of Titus, Paul, who writes the book of Titus, addresses the social gospel. And then secondly, as always, we'll take a look at a few uh, what I deem 21st century social gospels. And so let's turn now uh, to the book of Titus and uh, look at chapter 2 as Paul begins to address the social gospel. Let me just give you a really quick background on the book of Titus. Uh, Titus was a young man uh, who was a, a, a friend of Timothy's who worked alongside, excuse me, with Paul in, in and for the gospel. And he had been left on an island by the, by the name of Crete. And this island had, uh, the gospel had come to the island of Crete. We don't exactly know how, but churches had been born, if you will, on the, on the island of Crete. And so Paul essentially uh, goes and sends Titus to basically clean up and to organize the church. If you read the very small book of Titus, what you'll find out is that it was disorderly. Uh, there, were, uh, there was a lack of morality, a lack of leadership, a lack of structure. And so Paul says, Titus, I want you to go and work with these people to establish clear leadership, to establish elders, to teach the people what it looks like to believe in the correct gospel, and then to allow the gospel to work itself out in their lives. Uh, something that's noteworthy about the island of Crete is that they were known for their Im immorality. In fact, there was a saying that uh, essentially the, the, the term to be a Cretan was a, was a horrible thing to say. It meant you were immoral, that you were base, that you did all sorts of crude things. In fact, one historian tells us that on the island of Crete, that highway robbery in that culture was something that was to be commended. That is, if you were a highway robber, you were thought well of. In fact, Paul in chapter 1, he, he quotes a, a prophet or a poet of their own, and this is what he has to say about the Cretans themselves. He says it in uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, One of Crete's own prophets has said this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, 
this saying is true. And so he writes uh, to a church that is enamored in an immoral culture, that is known for its immorality, and secondly, that is known for not treating each other very well. Now, if you lived in a culture where if you were a robber on the highway and you were thought well of, you didn't treat one another exactly very well. And so Paul writes to this kind of a church, to these baby Christians, and he writes to Titus and he says, they need to know how to live in such a way that makes the gospel look good. They need to have good morals. And then secondly, they need to live in such a way amongst the culture at large, amongst those who are unbelievers, in such a way that it's helpful rather than hurtful. And so let's take a look at the first Uh, the first uh, passage we're going to look at, and that's Titus chapter 2. Basically, in verses 1 through 10, Paul talks about how each group in the church should live. And when we read it, you'll find out he addresses older women, younger women, young men, young women. He addresses every group in the church, and he says, this is how you should live. This is what your morality should look like as a Christian. This is how you should live your life in such a way. And he, he, he gives a couple reasons. Number one, you'll see it in verse 1. He says, Guys, live this way as a church because it's in accordance with sound doctrine. And what he means by that is that this, if you believe sound doctrine, this is the way you'll live. But the second reason he gives why they should live this way, that is this kind of morality, is, notice this, it's because of the impact that their moral or immorality can have on unbelievers. In fact, in verse 5, what we find out is that our morality as Christians can cause unbelievers to malign God, God's word. They can look down upon God's word because of the way we live our lives. They can say bad things about us because of the way we live our lives. Verse 8, or the opposite is true. Verse 10, we can, according to the way we live our lives, our morality, we can make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. And so what Paul is going to say in this initial uh, second chapter is he's going to say, this is how Christians should live. And by doing so, we make the gospel, we make Christian doctrine look very, very good, as opposed to making it look very bad. So let's read this together, starting in verse uh, 1, and we'll read through, we'll read through verse 10. <clears throat> You, however, speaking to Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then he goes on to explain that. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, uh, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. They can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Speaking to Titus now, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that, here's the point, Listen to this. Here's the point. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have had not, so that, excuse me, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Here's the point again. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. 
And so at the very beginning, what Paul is essentially doing is he's saying, this is the kind of moral, upright living that we should live as Christians. And whether we live that way or whether we don't, it has an effect on those who are outside the church. It has an effect on those who are unbelievers. Notice the phrase at the very end of verse 10. I, wanna, I want to focus in on that. He says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. Your translation may say something like this, so that we may adorn, so that we may adorn the teaching or the doctrine of God our Savior. I want to focus on this because Paul says, live this way, and by living this way, we make the gospel, we make this teaching, which he's going to spell out in a little bit, attractive. It looks good to people. The gospel looks good to people when we live our lives in such a way. What does it mean to adorn something, to make something attractive. For me, as I think about this term adorn, what comes to my mind most immediately is how we adorn uh, or or decorate something. Because when we adorn an object with something else, we decorate it or we increase the beauty of it. And I don't know about you, but in my mind, I automatically go to a Christmas tree. Uh, Christmas is right around the corner. I don't know about you, but it's one of the most wonderful times of the year, not just because the song says so. It's a wonderful time of year. I love Christmas. And one of the things that I most enjoy about Christmas, I don't know if you have your traditions, uh, is adorning the Christmas tree with uh, ornaments, do you not? Uh, now for us, uh, we uh, are a young family. Shelly and I have been married uh, six years, and so we are still formulating our traditions. But one of the things that we began to do is we got our first Christmas tree, and it was a real, real Christmas tree, but we were living in Dallas. And so it was like, yay high, you know what I mean? It was like a mini Christmas tree. And we're like, okay. So we set it on our table. We had a small apartment. And so we said, how are we going to adorn this thing, you know? And so uh, eventually we, we got out ornaments and those kind of things. As years passed by, we got the bigger kinds of Christmas trees, but the debate kind of raged in our household. How do we decorate this? Because when Shelly decorated the Christmas tree growing up, they did it in kind of a simple way. Just simple, colorful bulbs, you know, simple uh, wreaths around it. Not, not a lot of uh, adorning, you know. But when I grew up, we did it quite the opposite. What we would do is get this huge box of Christmas ornaments. And you know the kinds that are just, uh, they have your pictures on them, and they're all sorts of different kinds, and we would just load up the tree as much as we can so that there was no green showing, and there was all ornaments. And to me, that's adorning the, the Christmas tree. It's making it look good. Well, let me, let me give you one guess as to who's way one. Not mine. <laughs> and so now we adorn our Christmas tree in a simple way. And I'm learning to appreciate the simple adorning of the Christmas tree with colors and, 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 and things that are real simple. But the point is, is that when we adorn the Christmas tree, we are making it attractive, are we not? We're making it more beautiful. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get a fresh Christmas, Christmas tree, and we always get a fresh one, I like it that way, um, to me, I cut down the tree, and I look at it, and we, we set it up in our house, and I'm like, that's beautiful. I don't, know if you th- I don't know if you feel that way, but to me, just a Christmas tree plain, it's really pretty. It's beautiful. Maybe it's because I grew up in Texas, and, and my mom, it's funny, my mom comes up here, and she looks around, and, and you know, we have the kind of trees that look like Christmas trees just growing up in people's yards, and she's like, oh, look, a Christmas tree in their yard. I'm like, mom, it's not a Christmas tree. <laughs> You're embarrassing me. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, but she's like, this is a beautiful tree. She comes, and she loves the tree just by itself. You know, that's kind of how the 
the gospel is. In fact, what we see is that Paul goes on to define this doctrine that we adorn in verses 1 through 11 through 14. Let's read that together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The point that I want to make is that Paul then says, this is the gospel, this is the teaching of God that we make beautiful, that we make attractive with the way that we live our life, or we make it ugly by the way that we live our life. The gospel is inherently beautiful. Like a Christmas tree, it's, it doesn't necessarily need adorning. It's beautiful, it's good, it's attractive, just in and of itself. But what Paul says is that when we adorn the gospel with our good works, with morality that's upright and pure, that like adding ornaments to a Christmas tree adorns it and makes it more beautiful and more attractive, when we live our lives in such a way that it's upright and holy, as Paul described in chapter 2, it's like adding ornaments to an already beautiful Christmas tree, and we're making it attractive. We make the gospel attractive by the way that we live our life. And so the point, the way that Paul then addresses the social gospel is this. Our lives adorn the gospel They adorn the gospel, but they don't replace the gospel. Let me say that again. Our morality, our living in a pure and holy way is not the gospel, but it is a product of the gospel. We adorn the gospel. We make uh, the gospel that we preach attractive to people by the way that we live our lives. And so number one, he says in Titus chapter 2, The gospel is good and beautiful and perfect, but when we live holy lives, it's like adding beautiful ornaments to an already beautiful Christmas tree, and it should be attractive to those who are unbelievers. And then secondly, he goes on to address a different topic in chapter 3. He's talked about how the church should live moral lives in chapter 2, but then in chapter 3, he kind of expands his scope, if you will. He says, this is how you should live as, as believers in the church. You should live moral lives, but then this is how you should live your life outside the church. When you go out the walls, uh, out these doors, when you go to uh, work or when you go to school or when you are with your family, this is then how you should interact with those people, with people who aren't believers. And he, sa- he tells us that in chapter 3. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Remind the people, remind the people of the church to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready, notice this, to be ready to, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. And so what Paul is doing is he's expanding the scope. He says, this is how you should live your life as you relate to those who are unbelievers. And so first of all, he says, be subject to the government. The government is the world. This is how we should relate to them, be subject to them. We should be obedient to them. He says, be ready to do whatever is good. That means if you are out in the world and there's a good deed that needs to be done, be prepared to engage in that good deed with an unbeliever. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, slander no one. That is, don't be talking bad about people who are unbelievers. <laughs> don't slander them. But instead, be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. So he says, this is the way that we should live as Christians in the world. This is how we should relate to them. 
And then he gives us the reason why. He says, this is why we should live our lives in the world in such a way. And the emphasis in verses one through three is not necessarily our morality as Christians, but it's how we treat unbelievers. It's what we do in the lives of unbelievers. It's our works, if you will. And then notice the reason. Most obviously, it's the gospel. He always returns to the gospel. He says, live moral lives because of the gospel. Treat other people this way because of the gospel. Notice what he says in verses three through eight. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So he says, listen, this is why you should treat everybody with respect, unbelievers. This is why you should always be ready to engage in a good deed with unbelievers. This is why you should be considerate and not slandering, because you used to be one of them. (laughs) That's what he says. You used to be just like them, and you used to live the way that they did, but... Verse four, a huge but. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now that's a mouthful, okay guys? He's summarizing the content of the gospel. But here's the point. He says, live this way in the world. You used to be one of them. God has saved you from that. He saved you by your grace, not according to your works. He's changed you. He's renewed you. You have been born again. You're not who you used to be. And so because of that reality in your life, because of the gospel's work in your life, live differently in the world. Treat the unbelievers in the way that I've specified. Now notice verse eight, because it's the linchpin of this verse. He wants us to do something. He wants us to treat unbelievers in in, in a particular way because of the gospel. And he says it in verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying. So he says, this saying about the gospel is trustworthy and good. And then he says, I want you to stress these things. That is, listen, you're going to be teaching people how to teach. You're going to be helping people learn how to preach. You're going to be building up this church. And so what I want you to do is stress this. He says, this is of such vital importance. And he's referring to the gospel that we just outlined. He says, stress it, emphasize it, say it again and again. Make sure they get this. It's a trustworthy saying, stress it, place emphasis on the gospel. Why? Why have we been talking about the gospel for eight weeks? Why have we been talking about counterfeits for eight weeks? He says, when we stress the gospel and when we get it, when the people, when believers get the gospel, this is what should happen. So that, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. What he's saying is this. He's saying the more you understand the gospel as a Christian, the more you embrace the gospel as a Christian, the more the gospel impacts you as a Christian, the result, one of the results should be, verse 8, that you should devote yourself to doing what is good. And that is for the sake of those outside of our walls, for those who are unbelievers. He says these things, doing what is good, are excellent and profitable. That is, it's useful. So what he's saying is that the more you get the gospel, the more useful you will be in the life of unbelievers. 
That's basically what he says. The more you get the gospel and the gospel gets you, you will engage in good works outside of our walls. That is, you will meet social, political, and cultural. You will do good works. But the point that I want us to make here is this. Engaging in doing good things for the lost is not the gospel. When we do good things to the lost, it is not the gospel. It is the fruit of the gospel. It's the result of the gospel. It's when we stress the gospel that that happens. So you could say that the fruit of social concern in all of society grows out of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. By way of illustration, um, I am not a gardener, as you know. I'm not a green thumb, as you very well know. Uh, the other day I was in uh, the hardware store, and I took Asher with me. And, of course, we made our uh, trip to the toys, which is where Asher always wants to go. I think that's why they place it there in the hardware store, so you spend more money, right? Because I'm going to get, like, a tool, and he gets a toy. You know, that's how, that's how it happens. So he's looking at the toys, and he sees this um, watering pot. I don't know if that's what you call it. You water plants with it. It's like, you know, it has a spout, and you tip it over. You gardeners know what that is. I don't even know what that is. You put water in it, and you water plants. He's like, Dad, can I have this? And I looked at the price tag, and I said, sure. I was feeling gracious that day. And so he, we went home, and he played. He had a great time. He was watering the plants, you know, with Dad. And we were in, in the backyard, and we had watered some of the small plants that we have in the front of the house. And now we were in the back of the house where we have some rather large trees. And he said, Dad, I, wanna, I want to water the tree. And so I said, okay, let's water the tree, you know. And so he says, pick me up. And I said, why? And so I picked him up, and guess where he tried to water the tree? Where? On the, on the leaves, on the branches. And, and it makes complete sense, but I said, Asher, no, that's not how we water the tree. The tree gets it, and so I went on this long fatherly explanation about the roots, and, and he looked at me like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're too. <laughs> so I said, water it at the root. You know, you water the roots, and that how the, that's how the tree grows. But you know, that's, that's what we do sometimes. When we want to engage the lost in good deeds, we think, we just got to water, water the leaves, water the leaves. They're going to grow, right? And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. If you really want to make an impact and have a concern for uh, the social needs of the lost, what you do is you don't water the leaves, you water the root. <laughs> you water the root of the gospel in your life, and then branches shoot forth that cover people's lives and that meet people's needs. And so, uh, to wrap this section up, Paul has addressed the social gospel in Titus 2 and Titus 3. He's essentially said in Titus 2 that our uh, living moral lives and affecting society in a moral way comes from the gospel. And then consequently, he says, if we then want to do good for other people as well, that we focus on the gospel. So he addresses the social gospel. In our time remaining, what I'd like to do then is address a couple 21st century social gospels. And the first I've called the culture warrior. It's the culture warrior gospel. This counterfeit is essentially when we focus on moral issues in our society more than we focus on the gospel. It's when we focus more on issues such as pick your choice, abortion, homosexuality, the definition of marriage, the use of alcohol, prayer in schools, whatever it might be, whatever social, moral issue, and there's all sorts of them in our society and there are battles ranging. But when we get in trouble is this, is when we replace that cause, when we replace that moral or social cause with the gospel. And so we focus more on the cause than we do on the gospel that brings forgiveness for our failure to keep those, 
This is when we focus more on uh, an issue such as uh, definition of marriage or abortion, and we focus more on that issue than we focus on the gospel, which forgives people for not meeting that. The gospel changes people's hearts and minds so that they actually want to avoid those issues. And then the gospel enables people like you and me through the Spirit to actually do something about living differently on those issues. Let me be clear I'm not saying we shouldn't engage in social issues. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about social issues. We, sh- we should, and, and we do. But what I'm saying is that when we become so caught up in those issues that we replace those issues with the gospel, which is the power to forgive people and to change people, then we've run into the social gospel. And clearly from Titus 2, we see that morality is not the gospel. It's a byproduct of the gospel. And so three points. You might be caught in this counterfeit if... Number one, if you overlook your own sin, if you overlook your own sin because you don't struggle with that particular social issue. Oftentimes, people who, Christians who are caught in the culture warrior gospel tend to be judgmental. They tend to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And so what they do is they they care highly about the issue of abortion, as we should, but they think of themselves as better than the, poor, than the mom who has had an abortion, and they don't realize that though the mom might have killed uh, the infant, that they in their hearts have had anger, and Jesus says that's the same as murder. And what they do is they are happy to look at that person's sin and fail to realize that they, a million times over, are a murderer in their hearts. Secondly, You expect unbelievers to live up to your moral standards and you're mad when they don't. You may have caught up in the culture warrior gospel if you live with somebody who's a next door neighbor and they don't, they don't have the morality that you do. They don't believe the things that you do. But as a Christian, you do. But you get mad when they don't act like you do. You get upset and frustrated when they speak the way they do or they do the things that they do. And you don't realize that the reason you don't do those things It's because of the gospel. It's because God has changed you. That's why. It's because of God's grace. It's not because you're inherently better than they are. Third, when you disagree, when you see those who disagree with you on homosexuality, definition of marriage, whatever it may be, on these social moral issues, on someone who disagrees with you, you see them as your enemy rather than being ensnared and entrapped by Satan, who is the true enemy. When you view somebody who has a different view on abortion than you do, or whatever the issue is, and you begin to see them as your enemy, then you've slipped into the social gospel because they are not your enemy. They are ensnared in doing the work of the enemy, Satan himself. So there's the culture warrior gospel. When we care more about social issues than we care about the gospel, which can change people's hearts and lives and can change a society. Number two, and this is our second one, I call it the better place gospel. This counterfeit is when we mistake meeting an unbeliever's material or physical needs with the gospel. This is quite simply when the gospel gets reduced to our good deeds. That's it. When we think that doing good things for unbelievers is the gospel. 
and it's not. <laughs> we see very clearly from Titus 3 that doing good things is profitable for unbelievers, but it's not the gospel. We're not communicating the gospel by doing those. And so we reduce the gospel merely to making the world a better place. And so we think then the gospel is helping the poor or fighting AIDS or providing clean water or ending the sex trade or ending hunger. And all of those things are good and right. And we, as Christians, should care about them and should engage in them. But if we think that merely doing those things is communicating the gospel, we are essentially wrong. And we fall short of what the gospel is. We've seen from Titus 3 that social justice are the branches and the leaves of the gospel. And the gospel is the root. And when we water the root, those things should spread forth. It comes up in phrases like this, you are the gospel. When people say you are the gospel, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. The gospel is a truth of what has happened in the, de- in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's something that we proclaim and then we live our lives in such a way to adorn the gospel. We make the gospel attractive and we engage in the lost world because of the gospel. In phrases like preach the gospel at all times and you w- use words when necessary and I'm guilty of, of saying that myself, misunderstanding that The gospel is what we say with our lips, not what we necessarily do with our lives. So I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge you because if there's one area, if there's a counterfeit that we might fall for, it's probably going to be this one because my my fear for myself and for you is that we're going to engage in good deeds in our community. We're going to serve our next door neighbor. We're going to mow their yard. We're going to provide oil changes for people. We're going to do all sorts of good things as we should. We're going to live moral lives as we should. We're going to engage in relationships as we should and we're going to think that if we don't ever speak of the person of Jesus Christ and declare that God has created them for a relationship with him but we have fallen in our sin and that Jesus Christ is the answer to that by repenting and placing our faith in him if we think that we just live our life good moral and do good things that we're sharing the gospel then we deceive ourselves because we are not And so what we do is we engage the lost, we love people, we share our lives, we do those good things as an avenue, as a means for when the time is right and when the Spirit prompts, we declare the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is the better place, gospel. Before we take communion this morning, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever read his really, really good little book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, the Screwtape Letters is essentially a creative, uh, creative book from the mind of C.S. Lewis as he, as he makes up this conversation, these continuing conversation between demons. One is named Screwtape and the other is his protege. Wormwood, I think, is his protege's name. And we see these conversations between these demons. And they're trying to trick Christians. They're trying to bring down Christianity and they're talking amongst themselves in the demonic realm about how to do that. C.S. Lewis addresses the social gospel in one of these conversations. And so Screwtape advises his protege by saying these words. We do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means. Hear that? To make men, and women of course, treat Christianity as a means. Preferable, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that, if that doesn't work, as a means to anything, even to social justice. 
he goes on to say, the thing to do, advising Wormwood, the thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as the thing which the enemy demands, the enemy being God, and then work on him to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy, that is God, will not be used as a convenience. Hear that? The enemy will not be used as a convenience. Fortunately, it's quite easy to coax human beings around this little corner. So I want to ask you as we wrap up and as we prepare to take communion, have you been quite easily coaxed around this little corner into a social justice gospel? I think we all do from time to time. And if you have, I want you to recall and to remember that morality, living lives of pure holiness, and social justice, doing good things for others, are the fruit of the gospel. They're not the root of the gospel. And if we want to adorn and attract people to the gospel with our morality, and if we want to engage the lost world in real and tangible, hands-on things as we should— then we water the root of the gospel. And by doing that, we engage a lost world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have spoken to us very clearly on what it is that we should look like as we live within the church and as we live our lives as Christians. Father, we so desperately want to make uh, the gospel look good. We want to make it look attractive. And so I pray now for myself and for people, as we think about people, even right now, that are unbelievers who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that the gospel would be shared tangibly, both with our works and with our words. But, Father, we would share the gospel with our words, and then our works would just be like ornaments on that Christmas tree that make it look so good. Father, I pray for those of us who really desire to help a lost and hurting world and all sorts of social injustices that need addressing that we, as the church, must engage in. Father, may we not lose the gospel as we engage in social and uh, moral issues, but rather may we be driven by the gospel. May the gospel be stressed in our hearts over and over again because you have been gracious to us. May we be gracious to others and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray now as we prepare our hearts and minds to remember your son in communion, we thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We thank you for this series on the gospel, and I pray, God, that we would have more and more passion for the gospel, that we would have more and more clarity on what it is, and that, Father, we would have more and more fruits in our life of holy living and of engaging the lost because of this glorious gospel, which is summed up in the bread and the wine. And so, Father, now as we just take a few minutes, I pray, Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and our minds, uh, help us to repent of any counterfeits that we might fall into on a daily basis. Help us to return to the true good news of the life and death and burial and resurrection of your Son, that Jesus Christ, your body, um, is symbolized by this bread, and it was torn. It was ripped for our sins. And this grape juice is, uh, symbolizes your blood, which was spilt on a bloody, horrific cross because our sin is horrific in your eyes and it needed justice and it needed penalty and Jesus, you bore that for us. For all who believe, and we're so very grateful. So now, as we um, contemplate, I would ask that you prepare yourself, your heart and mind for taking communion. When you're ready, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've personally placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come to take of the bread, to take of the wine, 
Come when you're ready, and the music will begin. So let's do that now. <laughs>